Well, this Advent season, we are taking a little break from our study of the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to another Gospel, the Gospel of John, to particularly focus on the deity of Christ, the, the wonder of the incarnation of the Son of God. So I invite you to turn again with me this morning to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, as we look at what is referred to as John's prologue, these, these amazing opening verses authored ultimately by the very Spirit of God, but penned by John, and they mark his personality, but was revealed to him by God. The, the wonder that this Jesus of Nazareth is the King, he is the promised Messiah, as we have learned in the Gospel of Matthew, but in the Gospel of John, the Holy Spirit wanted to make sure that his people that the church would understand even more clearly that this man who is Jesus of Nazareth, who is the son of David, who is the Messiah, is at one and the same time none other than the eternal son of God incarnate in flesh, the mystery of of the incarnation. So this morning I want to continue to meditate on these verses We're going to look together in particular at verses uh, 4 down through 13. But this morning I want to go back up to verse 1 and read uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. This is God's word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light. But he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Amen. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we pause one more time this morning to address you and to acknowledge you and to speak to you. And what a privilege that is. And it is only made possible because of your Son becoming a man and to live and to die for us. And we're rejoicing this season in in the reality of his first coming, and we are looking forward to his second coming. We desire this morning to honor you and to honor your Holy Spirit, to pay attention to what has been revealed, that we might have a, a richer, deeper, more reverent understanding this Christmas of significance of the birth of our Lord. We ask for your help now in Christ's name. Amen. In verse 4, John refers to Jesus as the light, the light of men, the word Light occurs no less than six times in these opening verses. It is one of John's favorite themes, one of his favorite references for God, for Christ, and what is good and what is true. It is, it is synonymous in John's mind and heart with God and with Christ. You see this not only in the Gospel of John, but you see this in the letters of John, and then in Revelation, the last book of the Bible, which was authored by John, the disciple, the apostle of Christ. This time of year, 
we are especially appreciative of light. We recognize when different houses have lights in the yard and, and not far from us. I've never seen it. Some of you have, I know. Uh, the racetrack in Loudoun is, is lit up with lights and Christmas lights and decorations. And, you know, it's, it's fun. I, I appreciate as I drive around um, the area, as I drive here to church and, and get a kick out of how some people decorate their houses. And, and uh, we have some lights outside and we enjoy that. And um, we, we don't have any kind of display like some of those around. But at the darkest time of the year here... We all appreciate light. It's beautiful. It brings warmth. It brings hope. We were looking at our living room arrangement the other day, uh, my family, and, and uh, one chair that's over near the wood stove, which I happen to inhabit uh, uh, quite frequently. And we were talking about the position of the chair and how it would work, and we've had it one way, and we decided to keep it that way, in part because when one is sitting in front of the wood stove that happens to have glass, and, and even though it's a little bit dirtied with the soot and the ashes, you can still see the flame. And my whole life I've enjoyed just in the wintertime, somehow it gives me comfort, I don't know, warmth, I don't know what it is, but I enjoy looking at that flame. And I'm sure that you could testify to different examples of how you appreciate light. Just coming up in a few days, it's going to be winter solstice, the shortest day of the year. And we're, even though we've lived through this, those of us who are older many times, doesn't it surprise you every year how early the sun sets? What is it, around like four o'clock these days? And how late it rises in the morning, approaching 7.30 or something like that. We don't have much light these days, and, and we're thankful in part for the snow, uh, some of us, because with the sunlight, the snow makes things brighter. I don't know if you noticed it, but this morning, it was a whole lot brighter out with the sunrise because of the snow, and it's beautiful. We appreciate light, but this morning, I want to meditate with you in the remainder of our time of what the Bible reveals about this image, this metaphor, this word light in relation to Christ. John tells us in John chapter 1 verse 4 that in him, in Jesus Christ, the Son of God incarnate, was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. I want to spend some time this morning looking at this rich and beautiful theme, Jesus, the light of the world. We appreciate light, but I wonder if many of us have spent much time thinking of theologically about light. I don't know, but I suspect that every time or nearly every time the Apostle John, especially maybe the older he got, Every time or nearly every time he saw light, he saw the sun or he saw the moon or he saw the stars or he saw a candle or he saw a fire, he thought about Jesus. Or at least his mind drifted to thinking about his beloved Lord. That's the way that light worked in his life. And as we'll learn this morning, that wasn't John's deal in other words, he wasn't the first to come up with this. He's, he's not giving to Jesus a new title or a new name. It's God who gives this image for his son, this name for his son. And we'll see that this morning that Jesus himself claimed to be the light of the world. Light is a common created reality that we all experience except for those who are blind from birth all of us know the difference between light and dark or some shade between light and darkness in John's gospel and in his writings and frequently in the bible light is 
set over in contrast against darkness. Makes sense. You know when it's really dark and there's no light. Can't see a thing. Stub your toe. (laughs) You run into things. You have no idea where anything is if you're in pitch black darkness. And so the Bible, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uses light and darkness, light to distinguish what is pure from what is vile, what is good from what is bad, what is holy from what is unholy, what is life and what is death. It's a stark contrast, light and darkness. And you see this here in verse 5. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. The light here is a person in verse 5. It is the Son of God. The darkness is all that that is set over and against God, against Christ, and against the kingdom of God in Christ. We learn here in verse 4 and verse 5 that light and life go together. Keep that in mind. Light and life go together. In him, in the word, in Christ, was life. We looked at last week how that is a reflection of the deity of Christ, that with God he is, was, and always will be. He is the I am. He is the one who is the existent one. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Life and light go together. Think about it. Even in, I'm I'm not a scientist, but at a cursory Reflection, all life has a relation to light. All life has a relation to the light of the sun here on the earth. Even those creatures and those organisms and the depths of the ocean, miles and miles down, where there is no light and it is absolutely pitch dark, those creatures, whether it's the organisms that are tiny or those fish, those creepy fish that sometimes we're shown pictures of that live way down there, all those creatures, the only way that they live is by receiving some of the life that trickles down from up at the surface level and the creatures up there. Even the creatures that live in darkness under the earth, they only live by way of life on the surface of the planet, whether it's nutrients or whether it's bacteria or algae or organisms working their way down into those places. No sun, S-U-N, no life. You have coldness, you have darkness, and you have death. All life has a relation to the light of the sun in the created order, at least here on the earth, on this little planet. And we experience the reality of light and life, especially this time of year. We understand that some of us, it's common uh, language now that we have light deprivation and, and uh, understand that some people really struggle this time of year with a limited amount of sunlight. And we know that sunlight does build up vitamin D in your system. One of the reasons why there tends to be more sickness this time of year is because in the northern hemispheres, there's a little less exposure to the sunlight. There's all these ways in which this basic principle is reflected in the created order. And it's for this reason that we tend to love light. It's not an accident. I want you to turn with me, if you have your Bible, back to Genesis chapter 1. And what we're going to do now is we're going to do a little bit of a biblical theology of light with a focus on what the Bible has to say about light and Christ, ultimately. But I want to look together at a biblical theology of light and Christ. Genesis chapter 1, in the very beginning, in verse 3, God said, let there be light. Before that, there is darkness, there is There is formlessness. There is void. It is with light that there begins to be life. God, verse 4, saw that the light was good. 
Now, we must be careful here and not read back what John's saying. This is not saying that the light here is Christ as though Jesus was created. For we know that in John chapter 1 it says all things were created by him. So the word is with God the Father before the creation of physical light. Verse 3 is talking about the creation of physical light, created light. And with that light, God, God called that light good. And he separated the lights from the darkness. And God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning one day, the first day, one day. We don't mind darkness, most of us. Kids maybe tend to be a little afraid of the dark. And it's one of our job as parents to comfort them and help them understand it's, it's only temporary. Uh, they need to sleep and in the morning it will be light again. But we all of us, not only kids, we're, so we learn. We learn to not mind darkness. We're, we're okay with the dark. And those of us who are adults, some of us may be thinking, well, I don't mind no light. I, I kind of like the dark. I kind of like the night. Let's try you doing that week after week, month after month, year after year. You're not going to like that. And even when some of us say, oh, yeah, I like the nighttime, I like the darkness, you mean with your nightlight, or you mean with your phone, or you mean with your digital clock, you mean with some kind of light. You like light. You don't like absolute absence of light, which is true darkness. God made us for light by way of created order. In fact, a form of judgment that that God imposes upon those who are in rebellion against him is darkness. We see this. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 10. As God brought his people Israel out of Egypt, in Exodus chapter 10, one of the judgments that he worked out upon Egypt was darkness. Chapter 10, verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even a darkness which may be felt. A felt darkness. This is an oppressive darkness. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the sons of Israel had light in their dwellings. Then Pharaoh called to Moses and said, Go serve the Lord, only let your flocks and your herds be detained. So this this imposition of darkness was, was a severe judgment, and it moved Pharaoh to release the people. So darkness was a form of judgment upon the enemies of God and the enemies of God's people. A beautiful theme in the Old Testament, Exodus 13. Just turn over a little bit to Exodus 13. As God brought the people out, he set before them a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And elsewhere in the Old Testament, we learn that God refers to that pillar as the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord, we see in the Old Testament, is actually receives worship. That pillar was none other than a pre-incarnate visitation of the Son of God in the form of a pillar of fire by night and cloud by day. And in Exodus 13... Verse 21 says, The Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud. That was just no cloud, no ordinary cloud. That was a visible representation of the presence of God, of Yahweh among his people. He went before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way and in a pillar of fire by night 
to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. He did not take away the pillar of the cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. And so darkness was a form of judgment on the Egyptians, but light was a wonderful, comforting, guiding reality for his people as he brought them out of slavery and redeemed them. What an awesome thing that must have been. Imagine little Israelite boys and girls with their mom and dads getting ready for bed at night, peeking their eyes outside of the tent, and there's this glow, this beautiful, glorious glow, light, light over the camp. And the the little boys and girls look, and they can see this beautiful, this glorious pillar of fire between them and between the Egyptians, and there's this incredible comfort. Dear daughter, dear son, that is our God. That is our God who's protecting us. That pillar of fire, that pillar, that cloud of day. Awesome. This was a cause for praise. You don't need to turn there, but later in Nehemiah, Chapter 9, verse 12, Nehemiah reflected back on that day and he praised God then said, with a pillar of cloud you led them by day and with a pillar of fire by night to light for them the way. Beautiful. So from the very beginning, God created us to be for light. He created light for us, the physical light, And very early on in Revelation, in the scriptures, we see darkness and light set in contrast to one another. Darkness with evil, with doom, with oppression, with judgment. Light with salvation, with safety, with guidance, with provision, with protection, and all that is good and holy. No wonder then, Exodus chapter 27, if you want to turn there, Exodus chapter 27, verse 20. At the heart of the, inside the tabernacle, which most of the people would not see, but only the priests who, the sons of Aaron who were, Responsible to go in and maintain within the holy place and the holy of holies. But in the holy place, there was a golden lampstand with seven lights. Right? A menorah, you might know it as. Often associated today with Hanukkah or with Jewish worship is this symbol of this lampstand with seven lights must have been beautiful there was nothing to light that holy place it would be completely dark with the various uh, tent coverings and the animal skins that would cover the holy place would be an absolute dark place the only thing that would light that room as the priest went in would be that lampstand that holy light And God said in Exodus 27, verse 20, You shall charge the sons of Israel that they bring you clear oil of beaten olives for the light to make a lamp burn continually. They were maintained. This was not to be like a candle they lit at Christmas once in a while. This was part of their worship and part of the God's communicating to his people that he was with them was to be a perpetually burning light of this little beautiful crafted lampstand within the holy place. God used light to impress upon his people his presence, his guidance, and his direction for them. No wonder then in Psalm 27... Verse 1, one of my favorite psalms, one of the psalms you want to have handy at side, at your mind's side, when you're faced with fear. This ought to be a psalm that our little boys and girls are taught. 
David, remember, faced unbelievable odds and battles and fearsome things. We may remember his fight with Goliath with, you know, cute pictures, and I understand that we need to do that for boys and girls, but there was nothing cute or cuddly or comforting when as a young man he went and looked up at a man who's virtually as tall as his ceiling, armed to the teeth, and ready to cut off his head. David faced throughout his lifetime fears of various kinds, and yet he was able to testify, Psalm 27, verse 1, Yahweh the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? So there you see in David's mind the light of God, the fact that God was his light was the accompanied in his mind with salvation, light and salvation. Yahweh is my light and my salvation. And that experience for David on a personal level was experienced on a national level numerous times before he learned one of those times in Israel's past. But fast forward many years to the time of Esther when the Jews were in exile and were captives in foreign lands and and in Esther chapter 8, verse 16, I just, I'll just read it. You can turn there if you want. But after that incredible story in which the Jews were about to be exterminated under the leadership of an evil man named Mordecai, um, rather not Mordecai, Haman, uh, God used Esther and uh, others to save the Jewish people. And God saved his people from sure extermination. And for Jews, we learn in Esther 8, verse 16, there was light and gladness and joy and honor. So I want you to see that. Light and gladness and joy and honor. They may have actually literally lit torches, lit candles, kind of like we put on light shows. It's it's associated with joy and with gladness and with honor. It's not incidental, coincidental. It's given by God. And God used light as part of their celebration of their salvation from this extermination. The teaching about light and the association with God's salvation of his people and the Messiah in a particular comes to a high point through the prophecies of God's servant Isaiah. I want you to turn there now with me to Isaiah chapter 9 and you'll be very familiar with some of these references. They're often on this verse is often on a Christmas card this time of year. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2. Well, let's start in verse 1. There will be no more gloom. I mean, who likes a gloomy day? Um, Fog. and I mean, it's, it's okay once in a while if you know that the sun's coming. Well, here God uses the imagery of gloom and describe the oppression of his people, his people under duress, his people under tyranny and under oppression, physical and spiritual. And through Isaiah, God says there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. These are the northern tribes, and they would often be face some of the most severe uh, opposition from enemies who would invade the land because Assyria was in the north, Babylon was in the north. So if, if a nation from the north was going to attack the Israel, they would often come through these tribes and they would be the first to receive the cruelty of any invading army. Of course, the northern tribes were largely in rebellion against God. We're learning that in our evening services. The ten northern tribes were, were blasphemous. They were idolatrous. They had descended into a apostate form of religion. And so they had lived in darkness and gloom. 
up there by the way of the sea, on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness, these people in gloom and darkness, will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Of course, Matthew chapter 4, verse 16 and we're not, you don't need to turn there, but tells us that when Christ arrived, that that was the fulfillment. And the fact that he began his ministry teaching up in that region was the, fulfill, the initial fulfillment of this prophecy. Some 800 years before that the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. And that light is none other than the Son of God incarnate, Jesus Christ. This messianic figure in the gospel of Isaiah some call it in chapter 49 if you want to turn there with me this figure called the servant and he is God's servant but he is also Israel and Judah's savior he is a mysterious figure because he's he's God's servant he's Yahweh's servant but he's also to be worshiped and to be revered with Yahweh, with the Lord. He is with God, Israel's Savior. He is the Messiah, this messianic figure, the servant. And God says, Yahweh the Lord says to this messianic figure, the servant, in Isaiah 49, verse 6, he says, God says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. So just pause there. God had promised that he would send a, a savior, a Messiah, a son of David, who would rescue Israel and Judah from their oppression at the hands of the Assyrians and then ultimately the Babylonians. We shouldn't scoff at that. That is a big deal. God had made promises to Israel that he would be faithful to them, that he would establish them and give them the land. And so God establishes one figure, this servant, the Messiah, who will come, he will restore the tribes of Jacob and Judah and give them the land. But God says concerning this Messiah figure, he is too glorious, he is too great for such a small little task. Now think about that. It's not a small little task. I mean, I know Israel and Judah and relatives of the world are relatively small. But to this day, Israel and Judah do not possess the land and they are still hated. So it's a big deal. But God says that's too small a thing. Verse 6, I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. We'll read that again. I will make you a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. When Jesus later says in John 8, verse 12, don't turn there, just listen. I am the light of the world. He is claiming to be the fulfillment of that messianic figure that God makes as a light to the nations. Jesus lays hold of it, claims it, I am the light of the world. Not just Israel, Judah, not just all the nations, the entire earth. He is the light of the world. We can't leave Isaiah without going to Isaiah chapter 60. And this is a little bit cheating and getting to the end of our our sermon, but that's okay. It's kind of like having a Christmas cookie before dinner. This time of year, it's all right. In my mind, anyways. Kids, sorry, if your mom says it's not all right, it's not all right. But um, when you get old like me, it's okay if you sneak a Christmas cookie before dinner uh, or lunch. Maybe breakfast once in a while, too. I don't know. But... um, because Isaiah chapter 60 is like, is like the book of Revelation. We're going to end this morning at Revelation. Again, what are we doing? Why, why are we doing this? We're looking at what John the Apostle reveals in John chapter 1. Jesus is the light. The word is the light. 
We're exploring what is meant by this. This is not some hip, cool, trendy metaphor just John grabs a hold of. This term is a loaded term. And with John's use of it, he brings forward all that God has revealed previously about this. We've learned that God created physical light, that physical life is closely associated with physical light, but we've also learned that spiritually speaking, light and darkness are used from the beginning of the Bible to describe evil and good. God's people, God's enemies. This is contrast. And the light, there's a light coming that's going to shine on you. And we're longing for a biblical people. We're looking for the light. And that light is ultimately a person. But in Isaiah chapter 60, this, the success of the light of the world, this messianic figure, God's servant, is going to be so extensive, so thorough, so glorious that the day is coming when there will no longer, verse 19, be any sun for light for day, nor for brightness, nor will the moon give you light. But you will have the Lord for an everlasting light and your God for your glory. Your sun will no longer set, nor will your moon wane, for you will have the Lord, Yahweh, for an everlasting light, and the days of your mourning will be over. That is what we are headed for. When there will no longer, in the new heavens and the new earth, there will no longer be any need for a sun, physical sun, for a moon or for stars, for literally the glory of God in the face and the person of Jesus Christ will light up the whole cosmos. And it will be a beautiful light. Just as that darkness we, we noticed in Exodus was an oppressive darkness that could be felt. Did you remember that? In Exodus chapter 3, that darkness could be felt so that light, the light of Christ, will be seen, yes, with our physical eyes, but it will be felt light, the goodness and the glory of Christ. That's what we're headed for. And as I said in John chapter 8, why don't you turn there with me now as we go fast forward to the gospel of John. Jesus claimed to be the light of the world. John 8, verse 12. That's an astonishing claim. Especially if you know your Old Testament. He's speaking to Jews who largely know their Old Testament. Light in Jewish religion, Jewish society is a huge deal. They understand that God has revealed himself as a light to his people. Light plays a significant part of their worship and so forth. And Jesus in verse 8, chapter 8, verse 12, spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. That's an incredible claim. Right there is a claim to deity and to his right and, and place as the Messiah. I am the light of the world. David said, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Jesus is claiming to be Yahweh, one with Yahweh, the God of Israel. And not only that, not only the God of Israel, but the God and light of the world. He who follows me, Jesus said, will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So as we read John's opening verses in chapter 1, which we read at the beginning this morning, remember that this is not John's idea. All John is doing is recording what Jesus taught and professed with his own mouth. This isn't John's theology, so to speak. This is the truth as revealed by God and revealed by Christ. Jesus later said in John chapter 12, turn there with me, John 12, verse 46. Jesus said, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. 
And he's not talking there about physical darkness. He's talking about spiritual darkness, separation from God, darkness of sin, the darkness of guilt, the darkness of judgment, the darkness of spiritual oppression. I have come as light in the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. So what happened when the light came? What happened when the light came? By and large, the light was rejected. It's amazing. You would think that people who had lived their whole lives in darkness with the complete absence of light, when a light showed up, would be thankful, run for that light, go to that light, draw near to that light, ask for more light, Love the light. But John chapter 3, verse 19, there John reveals people didn't love the light at all. The response to Jesus was not one of loving the light. Rather, John said, verse 19, this is judgment, that the light has come into the world And men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. The light was rejected. Verse 19, it's a powerful phrase. Men loved the darkness, loved the darkness. Our culture loves the darkness, doesn't it? Not merely the physical darkness, although that may increasingly be the case as, as with technology and lights and, and the darkness tends to be the time when people engage in activities that Um, you know, partying or whatever. Increasingly become a culture of the night rather than the day. But far more than that, if we think of what the Bible has to say about darkness being associated with lawlessness and disobedience and evil, our culture not only loves the darkness, it glorifies it. We're living right now in a time in which what was once in the shadows is now right out there in the front forefront. There's never a time in our, our nation where sin was completely hidden. But there was a time when there were all kinds of forms of evil, violence, debauchery, sexual perversion, chaos, and murder, and lies, and gross disgusting humor that was once reserved only for certain streets and then only in certain cities and only then would you go at a certain time usually the nighttime and and dark places and those kinds of things were in those kinds of places in dark theaters that you had to go find now all those things are just right out there you're watch watch just any television channel for any amount of time and you will see there displayed violence and wretchedness sexual perversion of a kind that is unimaginable in some ways to some previous generations our culture right now loves darkness savors it it sells darkness sells horror film industry is one of the largest grossing film genres in the united states horror films you think that wouldn't be the case because i mean there's only so many times that there can be a scary time i mean it's dark there's a bad guy he's got a knife or he's got a chainsaw i mean how many times can you do this deal right how many times can you, you know, the same storyline over and over? People pay 
billions, billions of dollars to go and to watch what is vile and what is violent and bloody and gross and sadistic and they love it and they watch it all it's not just one generation it's multi-generation grandma and grandpa are watching this now kids are watching this now as an aside this really has nothing to do i want you to understand a dynamic why is that the case why do people love horror films i want you to understand this and i want you to have an insight people apart from god and apart from christ strangely love to be scared why because they were created by god to fear him isaiah 8 says the lord shall be your fear and he shall be your dread you take away the fear of god you take away the dread of god you take away and that fear and by the way that dread is a holy it is a good it is appropriate fear of god it's not terror although if you're in sin you will be terrified of god but even those who love God and whom God loves, there is to be a fear. There is to be an awesome understanding of his holiness. He is to be your fear. He is to be your dread. Here's how it works. You take away God. You take away the fear of God. Men and women are desperate to have that experience of fear of God, even if it's in a corrupt, base, vile, twisted unrecognizable form all men and women are doing by flocking to horror films is revealing that they were made to fear someone and fear something that was a little side sermon this morning and by the way as christians we have nothing to do with it we have nothing to do with an industry of fear Uh, i don't think anything about halloween and being scared is funny I take that command, he shall be your fear and he shall be your dread. I take that as serious as I take the command, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. We are actually not permitted by God to fear anyone or anything else but him. It's part of our worship. So I can't go there. And you can't either if you're a Christian. But this culture loves darkness and the horror film industry is only one aspect of it. Pornography, as you know, is just just the norm now. Just the norm. It's just understood that's just going to be something that everyone participates in with one tap on their phone or two. And this culture loves darkness. This culture loves death. Even those films, those shows that make it to our televisions and, and are supposedly uh, at a rating that's... A, appropriate for general audiences they're just filled with violence they're filled with death they're filled with fear and murder it's the same old storyline again and again and you think how many times i mean how much of this can the culture take the answer is a lot because the culture loves darkness loves it it's part of the depravity it's part of the corruption of the human soul and mind to love all that that is opposite of God, opposite of Christ. And even if we don't participate in those more overt forms of darkness, the reality is that every single one of us, apart from God and Christ, our hearts love darkness. Our hearts are born in darkness. We are born with a corrupt nature. From earliest age, we are interested and curious about what is dark and we have love for self and love for what is opposed to God. And, and when we sin, what do we do? Do we bring it into the light? Oh, no. With our lies, we cover over it. We hide. And so we begin to live a life of darkness. We live a life in the shadows. We live a life where people around us don't really know who we are or what we do or what we value. We cultivate darkness. That's why men love darkness rather than the light and why when Jesus came and the light came, the overwhelming response was rejection. But there's hope. Not all stay in darkness. Not all stay in darkness. 
Those who confess their sin and humbly come into the light receive grace and forgiveness. Turn with me to 1 John 1, 7. Just a few more verses this morning. 1 John 1, 7. There, John, the same author of the gospel, the Apostle John, says, If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. Wow. We who are covered in darkness, dwell in darkness, love darkness, cultivate darkness, live in darkness, can come into the light. And if we do, and this is what is meant, this is what conversion involves. You cannot become a Christian and hold on to your darkness. You can't. You cannot add Christ and keep darkness. Light and darkness have no part with one another. It's all or nothing. God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world, to come for men and women who are living in darkness, who are in the domain of darkness. It's another teaching in Colossians that in your darkness, you may think you're controlling your darkness, but you're just a slave. You're just a pawn of the kingdom of darkness under Satan. You're under the domain of darkness until God, in his kindness and grace, brings you out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom, the glorious light of his Son. But in order to come into that kingdom, the process of conversion, of being born again, of confessing Christ, you must confess your darkness. You must step into the light, and it's humbling. It's humbling, yes, but you must consider that God knows anyways. For another teaching of scripture is darkness and light are alike to him. He can see through all of the charades. He can see through all of the lies. He, unlike Santa, actually does know what you are thinking. He knows whether you've been naughty or nice. And God knows not the cheap and silly little things we do wrong. God knows the depths of the corruption, of the lust, of the of the of the self-centeredness of our hearts and yet he still calls us to himself and to his son he calls us into the light and when he does and when we humble ourselves and confess our sins and just step into the light we admit to God who we are because he already knows that anyways we say oh God save me from the darkness save me from my guilt Oh God, may I please have your son as my savior. I need him. He is the light of the world. And if I don't have him, I will be damned in utter darkness perpetually without end because of your just judgment. Oh God, save me and bring me into the light. Here are all my deeds. Here are all my ways. I hold nothing back And I want to turn from them and I want to turn from the darkness and what is vile and what is wretched and what is impure and what is displeasing to you. And I want to come and I want to know and I want to love and I want to cling to your son who is my light and my salvation. And when God works in your heart and when you come into the light, incredible change takes place. We don't have time to turn there, but listen, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, Paul says to believers, you formerly were darkness. You were part of the darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Fascinating that by trusting in Jesus Christ, who is the light, those who are trusting Christ become into union with him and in Christ with him become light. I didn't say that. Paul did. You are light in the Lord. Jesus, of course, says to his disciples, you are the light of the world to the church, he says. And we become children of light. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 5, you are all sons of light, sons of day, sons and daughters. 
We are not of night or darkness. This is a defining characteristic of a Christian's life. You are done with darkness. The world loves darkness. The world cultivates darkness. The world pays for darkness. The world throngs to darkness. We as believers love light because we love Jesus. We become sons of the day, daughters of the day, daughters of the light, sons of the light. What a beautiful title. You're believers here this morning. You are sons and daughters of the light. To know Christ then is to love him, to love the light. Two more references I want to make this morning. One application, if I haven't already made some applications, but one I want to leave you with just the wonderful hope that the Bible ends with. But what this means in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, again, just listen briefly in closing. If we love Jesus, we love the light, we don't love the darkness, and we don't what love what is displeasing to him. So Paul says, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is ever of good repute, if there's any excellence in anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. That's huge. We are inundated with material, all of us, with our, those of us who have phones and, and tablets and so forth, with, with so much darkness. And some of it's not just the overt stuff. Some of it's just always the, I mean, it's always just the bad stories. I mean, you got to know some of what's going on in the world, but you understand that the news companies, they, they, they have your attention if they can just keep putting darkness behind before you, right? So you're a Christian. You know that. You don't need to see all that. You know the world's dark. You, you know it's broken. You know people are getting murdered and all kinds of things. You're not surprised by any of it. The Bible told you long before Fox or WMUR or CNN, whoever. So you don't dwell on those things. You dwell on what is right and what is pure. Of course, that's the scriptures first and foremost. What is lovely, what we see with our eyes, what we listen to is good, is pure, is lovely. It's good repute. The same is true in the church. This is what we do. We just live in the light. So many who come into a church like this are used to in churches there being kind of like, you know, levels of, of storylines and, and, you know, hidden closets and so forth. I am telling you, God help us with all the determination we have in Christ, in this church. We walk in the light and in transparency and what you see is what you get. And that is huge because we are sons and daughters of the light. We can't be the light of the world. If there's closets and layers of darkness, may it never be. We love the light. And we love the light in closing because we're all moving towards light if we're in Christ. Let's close by looking at Revelation 22, verse 5. Revelation 22, verse 5. Jesus is the light of the world. And when he was born of the Virgin Mary, conceived of the Holy Spirit in her womb, born of the Virgin Mary, God incarnate, the light entered this world, and he is coming back. And when he comes back and establishes his kingdom, the kingdom of light, on this earth, and ultimately when there is a new heavens and a new earth, we learn in Revelation 22, verse 5, there will no longer, well, once again, I have to back up. Verse 3, there will no longer be any curse and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. The city and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night and they will not have any need of light or lamp or light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever love the light and every time we see a beautiful sunset or a beautiful sunrise as we see beautiful lights as we see candles christmas eve lit may our mind like the apostle john's drift towards our gracious savior and lord who is the light
and look forward to that day when all will be light because we will be in his presence. We will not only see that light, we will feel it because we will be in the presence of our Lord. Let's pray. God, what a beautiful picture, image you have revealed in your scriptures and given us in creation the beauty of light. Help us to use light for the purposes for which you gave it, not only so that we can see and read and watch and do our work and grow things, but that we might know your Son, who is the light of the world. For any who are here this morning who have yet to trust in him, I pray that today he or she will come into the light and trust in Christ. And for we who trusted in Christ at some point, who are your sons and daughters in the light, help us this season and this coming year to reflect that in our daily living and what we look at and what we listen to and how we speak and what we think about and what we love and what we dwell upon. May we be Christ's people, sons and daughters of the light. In his name we pray. Amen.